Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. This is your host, Ajara Robinson, and I'd like to tell you about a new feature we have at the Living Proof podcast series, and that's the listener comment line. You can call us at 716-645-3322 and leave a comment or suggestion. And who knows, maybe in a future podcast, we may feature your comment on the air. The number again is 716-645-3322. Call us. We'd love to hear from you. This is your host, Ajua Robinson. Most of us are familiar with state child welfare statutes that govern termination of parental rights. Typically, they include issues of child abuse and neglect. However, what if one of the criteria for parental rights termination was simply because you have a disability? What would the impact be on your family and your child? Today's guest, Dr. Elizabeth Lightfoot, wanted to know the answer to that question. Dr. Lightfoot is an associate professor and PhD program director at the University of Minnesota School of Social Work. Dr. Lightfoot has over 20 years of experience working with individuals with disabilities and examining disability policy and services. Over the years, her primary research focus has evolved from studying anti-discrimination policy to studying how disability policy and the concept of accessibility intersect with other social service areas, such as child welfare. In today's podcast, Dr. Elizabeth Lightfoot speaks by telephone with Savra von Felker, PhD student at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work about her research efforts to improve the lives of people with disabilities. My name is Savra, and this is Liz from the University of Minnesota. Um, Liz, would you like to tell us a little bit about what you're working on right now? Sure, I'm happy to. Um, I've been, for the past 20 years, generally looking into disability disability policy and services, and lately I've been looking at the intersection of disability policy and services and the child welfare system, looking both into how children with disabilities and parents with disabilities interact with the child welfare system. What's your most recent work in that area? Lately, I've been focusing mostly on parents with disabilities and sort of came about where we were working on a project where we were looking at the intersection of kids with disabilities and child welfare and looking at the state statutes and realized that parents with disabilities were actually listed in the state codes and where disability was listed as a grounds for termination in most of the states. Did it give any specifics in that realm or just if you have a disability? No, you know, most of the state statutes are pretty vague and written pretty broadly, but disability was one of the only conditions that's listed in the state statute. So usually they are focusing on parental behavior as grounds for termination, like neglect or abuse or things like that. Um, But disability is listed not 
singularly. So a lot of codes say disability alone can't be looked at as grounds for termination. But in the context of other things, um, you can look at a parental disability. Coming from a disability rights and advocacy background, this just struck me as something that is way off base. We should be focusing on the behaviors of parents, not whether they have a disability or not. And if you put disability directly into the state code, then that will make the child welfare system and especially the courts focus on disability. And there's a little bit of research showing that that is what happens where people will focus on, you know, let's see if we can get a diagnosis, and if we have two psychologists say they have a disability, then that will end up being grounds for termination. So we were looking at that and thinking, well, you know, this just really isn't making a whole lot of sense for how we generally support people with disabilities. In the disability world, the big concept is on parental supports. I mean, not on parental supports, on supports in general. Individual supports is the general idea. So we look at what kind of supports, whether they're formal and informal, can help people with disabilities live in the community. Things like um, education, supported employment, all sorts of areas to see how people with disabilities can be fulfill their you know, major life domains. The one area that we usually don't think about as being a major life domain is parenting for people with disabilities. Now, most states have some kind of system set up for people with disabilities to provide support. Do you see, at least in Minnesota, that there are any services in regards to parenting? Very little. Most states, all states, have pretty extensive support systems for people with disabilities. And people with disabilities through the Medicaid waiver or through DD services can get supports for living in the community, working in the community, transportation, those sorts of things. But what it doesn't include is for parents with disabilities any help for them with their kids. A person with a disability could get support. Let's say they could get accessible transportation. They could have the van come pick them up and take them somewhere. But they wouldn't be able to take their child on the van with them. We need to step back a minute and because you're talking about parents with disabilities. Are you specifically looking at developmental disabilities or did you look at all the frames? Yeah, you know... um, I tend to take a broad view of disability and look, use an ADA definition, which covers you know most people who have limitations in one or more areas. But often the focus becomes on people with intellectual and developmental disabilities in parenting, even though parents with sensory disabilities or parents with physical disabilities have often been discriminated against in court proceedings where a parent with a disability who's, let's say, going through a divorce, a parent with a physical disability, the disability will be brought up as something to focus on. And many parents who really have very few limitations have had trouble when they interact with the courts around parenting. So my research has focused both specifically on folks with intellectual and developmental disabilities as well as more broadly on disability in general. Because the services for the different disabilities is different. They vary quite a lot. And the, the notion of supports, that really comes out of intellectual and developmental disabilities. And AAIDD, the American Association on Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities, has made the concept of support sort of a cornerstone of their view of disabilities. And it's really been sort of groundbreaking that 
to view that people with intellectual and developmental disabilities need supports just like everybody else, and these supports are crucial for having them live more included lives, more inclusive lives. So what has been your research in that area? Aside from the policy research, which has been very interesting, when we're looking at the policy research, I'll sort of tell you the story a little bit. So we're looking at the policy and looking at how parents with disabilities were being treated in the state statutes. We ran across an advocate from Idaho who had been very interested in removing the disability language from the state code. And they actually, after a multi-year process of advocacy, got the Idaho state code to change. And in the process, they said that when the courts were um, looking, assessing parents with disabilities, they had to look at what types of supports or assistive devices that they need to help parent their child. And so that's where the idea of parental supports came about. But then we realized we didn't really know what parents with disabilities actually need to support their children. So that's where my partner and I, so I work quite extensively with Tracy Law Liberty, who's in the Center for Advanced Studies in Child Welfare here at the University of Minnesota. And so we partner a lot on these projects. And we thought that if we're going to put parental supports into these state codes, and more and more states now are starting to do that. So we've had, in the last couple of years, we've had two or three more states put in the concept of parental accommodations or parental supports in the state codes, then we need to figure out what these actually mean, specifically for people with disabilities. So if if a parent with disabilities is involved in the child welfare system, what should they be looking at for supports? What are the formal and informal supports that parents might need? And really, every parent needs supports. I have three kids, and I have had childcare for them. So that was one of my parental supports. I paid for it myself. But the idea that parenting is not a completely independent activity, but it's rather an interdependent activity. So grandparents providing respite care is a form of informal supports that many people have if they're lucky. Well, and isn't Child Welfare now looking into providing parental supports even past people with disabilities? The child welfare system does do some of that, but generally when they're assessing whether someone is able to parent their child, they're looking at whether they're able to independently parent their child. And that has been the big problem for people with disabilities, particularly people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, is some of them may be able to provide lots of the parenting, but not all of the parenting. They might need help with certain things. And that's not considered acceptable in the child welfare system. So that's what the problem is. So we're trying to broaden the idea that when you're assessing a parent, you have to look and see what are their broader supports. And these can be things for someone with a physical disability, like adaptive equipment. You know, there's all sorts of adaptive cribs or childcare equipment. Or it can be someone who's serving as a parent mentor or providing respite or co-parenting or things like that as well. Help with homework or tutoring. And so that's the research that we're working on right now is we're trying to figure out what are the typical parental supports that parents with disabilities need. And so we're in the midst of a research project right now where we're interviewing parents with intellectual and developmental disabilities and sensory disabilities and physical disabilities, essentially asking them what are the types of parental supports that they need, that they receive, 
and then for those that they receive, how effective they are. And so that's we're in the process of doing that right now. I think we've interviewed about 30 folks so far and are getting some preliminary findings about what are the services that people typically get. So it's a qualitative study? It's a qualitative study. We're doing in-depth interviews, but we're also actually asking them to rate services and discuss which services they need and want. We're also looking at parents who have been directly involved in the child welfare system and asking about their involvement with the child welfare system, what sort of modifications, that's Americans with Disabilities Act language, what modifications the child welfare systems made to make their services accessible to parents with disabilities. Do you have any preliminary results yeah, for that? I mean, in the, there, it's, it's nothing really surprising, but part of why we're doing this is to get sort of a baseline so when the child welfare system or the courts are looking at parental supports, they have an idea of what types of parental supports to look at. By far, the types of supports that people want and get and find helpful are informal supports, like parents coming over to help them, grandparents coming over to help them, those sorts of things. That would be probably for every parent, those would be the most desired. You'd rather have your family members coming over to help you than some paid staff person coming over to help you. Parents with disabilities thought that they needed and they thought that they were helpful were things like parenting classes that were tailored to parents with disabilities, daycare, respite care, accessible transportation. These are the types of supports that most parents would like, but these are ones that parents with disabilities find particularly helpful. Modifications to child welfare, what parents with disabilities found particularly helpful, the two main things were having hands-on parenting instruction and in-home parenting instruction. So the parents with intellectual and developmental disabilities particularly don't do very well if they go to a parenting class. They would rather have someone come into their house and show them directly, you know, what to do in this particular situation. Which makes sense, since they need a little extra attention than a regular class would give them. Right, and also that's how some folks learn better, is they learn by they learn by doing, and, and the transfer of knowledge is easier when you're actually doing it in your house with your own kids and having someone watch you do it and then provide you tips and pointers on how to do it better. Now, does Minnesota, does the system for people with intellectual disabilities provide independent living support for somebody to come out and do those kind of things? There are independent living services, but again, they're not focused on parenting activities. So these are usually coming through the child welfare system. So if you need help with parenting, you only get that if you've come to the attention of the child welfare system, which is not a good way to get supports for parenting and the disability system. We in Minnesota have been fortunate that in the past we have had two excellent programs providing supports for parents with disabilities, one through one of our larger counties and one through a nonprofit organization. And these really were national models of trying new ways to support parents. And these were parents with intellectual and developmental disabilities. The sad thing is that with budget cuts, both of these programs have been cut, I think, in, you know, within the last five years. 
So right now in Minnesota, no, we do not have any formal programs. There's only about, and I'm not sure the number right now with the budget cuts that have been happening across the country, but I think there's only about 30 programs throughout the country that actually provide supports and training for parents with disabilities. So most parents with disabilities have very little access to these things we're talking about, such as in-home parenting instruction, unless they have been involved in the child welfare system. Some of your previous work had looked at the prevalence of people with disabilities in the child welfare system. Did you look at the number of children or the number of parents? We're starting right now to try to find the prevalence of parents with child welfare, parents involved in child welfare. We really don't have any idea how many there are. There have been no studies done anywhere looking at the prevalence of parents with disabilities involved in child welfare. The number that gets thrown around is of parents with, this is the number that's thrown around, of parents with intellectual and developmental disabilities, 40 to 60% um, lose their child. But that's just a really gross estimate. And so what we're in the process of doing right now, or actually this is our summer project that Tracy LaLiberty and I are doing, is we are going to be trying to match. So the problem is that the child welfare system doesn't track parents with disabilities, keep records of the parental disability because they're focusing on the child and they actually have done a pretty poor job of recording children's disability even. But parents' disability is even further off. And so what we're planning on doing is looking at, we've got this pretty neat data set here in Minnesota where we are able to match data from um, the child welfare system, the developmental disabilities, education, and many other systems. And we're going to look at parents involved in the child welfare system who've had termination of parental rights, and then we're going to match the parent with the education data to find out if they were identified as having a disability in the education data. And so that's our strategy for trying to figure out which of these parents actually have a disability. We'll look at the parent and see if they were identified in the education data as having a disability. So you're going to have to assume that all of the people are from Minnesota. Yeah, well, that's our problem. We'll be able to see if they're in Minnesota or not. So the people who aren't in Minnesota, whether they have a disability or not, would be excluded. Is there a database of people who are involved in the intellectual disability system that you have there? We have that too, but that one is a voluntary system. So the numbers would be much lower. So education, because education is mandated to identify folks with disabilities. So they will have higher levels. Now their problem is that they tend to over-identify people with disabilities in the education system. And some people of different groups have been overrepresented as having a disability in the education system. So using any of these administrative data sets are not perfect. What we have done in the past is looked at prevalence of kids with disabilities in the child welfare system. So up until recently, uh, states were not required to track children's disability either. Now that's changing with the recent reauthorization of CAPTA, but up until recently, states didn't have to track it. And about half the states tracked whether a kid had a disability or not in the child welfare system. And there had only been two studies looking at the prevalence of kids with disabilities in child welfare. One was using the NIS, which is the large child welfare survey, 
And then there was another one done in Omaha where they were matching hospital records and child welfare records and court records to figure out what the prevalence was. But nobody had actually used administrative data before. So we were looking at administrative data to see um, in the state of Minnesota how many kids with disabilities were receiving services. And we are also looking at when kids with disabilities were in the child welfare system, how many of them were ending up in out-of-home placement. So we found that of the kids with disabilities in Minnesota who had an instance of substantiated maltreatment, 22% had some sort of disability label. And then when we looked at kids over five, because often kids, are, kids aren't even identified as having a disability until they reach kindergarten or get into the school system, that if you looked at kids with disabilities over age five with substantiated maltreatment, 28% were identified as having a disability. So that's a huge number. You know, over a quarter of the kids in child welfare have some sort of disability label. You know, there's lots of different reasons why that could be. Lack of support yeah. for the parents might be because they have a disability diagnosis. The kids have a disability that the child welfare system thinks they're more at risk than other kids, but the risk might not actually be that different than for kids without disabilities. What was the prevalence of kids who were not returned to the home? That was just in general. And then looking at comparing kids with disabilities and kids without disabilities, kids with disabilities were a little more than twice as likely to be placed out of the home than kids without disabilities. And the older they get, the higher it got. So yes, so there is something going on there which makes us think we really need to look into this more. Are kids with disabilities being supported when they are placed out of the home? Are the foster care homes accessible? You know, we know that there's treatment foster care for kids with some types of disabilities, but not for other types of disabilities. There's also the chance that some of the kids who are experiencing maltreatment are then labeled as having a disability so they can get more care. That particular study, you were looking at disabilities generally across the board. Yeah, we were looking at disabilities generally. and Well, we were looking at how the child welfare system identified them as having disabilities. So they have these different disability codes, which the child welfare worker can enter in as the child having. So it's not surprising that the most prevalent code was emotional disturbance. That's what they called it. But even without that, there were lots of other types of disabilities. Developmental disabilities was pretty high too. About 10% of the kids who had a disability had a developmental disability. There was lots of kids listed as having a disability, but the disability was unknown. When we're having child welfare workers enter in disabilities and in most states, including Minnesota, there isn't a whole lot of training for child welfare workers and disability. It's not surprising that they might not know this as well as folks in other systems might know. Which is interesting because they're the ones that can provide those services when the child's identified. It's difficult when these systems are so big and so siloed that in large systems, they might not have the chance to interact like they could. So the child welfare workers have so much that they have to know and so much that they have to do that disability is something that just might not be at the top of their list. 
And so there's really a need for collaboration. And we've looked into that too in a previous study where we were looking at what actually happens when there's a case involving a kid with a disability. Minnesota's a county-based system, so every county has a different system of what they do. And some counties have dual case managers where they have a case manager in child welfare and a case manager in, if the kid has a developmental disability, they'll have a case manager in developmental disabilities too, and they work together. You know, and that can work really well. There are a few special units where, and I know there's some of these in other states as well, within the child welfare system where there are disability experts within child welfare. I think that's this is a great model. So if you know, if there's a kid with a family that has a a kid with a disability, it will go to this either particular unit focuses on disabilities or this particular worker within the unit that has expertise and that can work really well. Did you uh have a chance to look at how that affects children being taken away? Yeah, no, we haven't done that, but that's certainly something that we would want to look at. And we actually need to you know, it's a, some a next step is to look more broadly and see how these different models are being implemented. Because child welfare is a, not a federal, federally run program. Right. Well, they have the federal it. money available, but yeah. then each state runs it differently. Yeah, each state runs it, and some states run it as a statewide system with um, regional offices. Others have county-based systems like Minnesota. And to look and see how it, how it's done in different places is something we have to do before we then figure out how are we going to see what works best. We did find, you know, in this county-based system, we've got some pretty small counties in Minnesota, and while we don't know what the actual outcomes are, we did see the interaction really work well, where the developmental disabilities worker and the child protection worker pretty much sit in the same office. They know the same families and they can sort of work together to figure out what kinds of supports we can do. And this just really isn't possible when you're working in a huge county where you might not be in the same building. Yeah, my experience is they don't necessarily interact that much. <laughs> right, and they, you know, it's not their fault. They just, it just isn't set up for interaction. The two systems work usually very separately from each other. Yeah, we might be able to learn something from the smaller counties where they really work as a team and for people who are interacting with more than one system, that can really work well for them. So they're getting some continuity of supports. But going back, the prevalence and whatnot is stuff that you've been doing in the past. We just actually finished a prevalence study recently where we're looking at the prevalence of the kids in out-of-home placement. And now we're shifting using this, that same data set to look at the parents with disabilities and try to figure out the prevalence for that. It'll be really exciting because, you know, we've been throwing out numbers for a long time and we really do not even know what the prevalence is or how many, how many parents we're talking about. Most of the work for parents with disabilities has really focused on what we can do to change the parents and teach the parents and train the parents. And there's been a big emphasis on what can we do to make parents better parents. And so there's a lot of psychologists, cognitive psychologists, developmental psychologists, trying to figure out what sort of training models work. And where Tracy and I are really coming from is, you know, yes, 
everyone everyone can learn to be a better parent. I can too. We're focusing more on what are the supports that we can give to parents and what can we and which really comes from a social work perspective, you know, looking at the broader environment and what are the laws that are affecting parents with disabilities, what are the supports, how are we how are we including parenting as a regular part of life for people. And this doesn't mean that all parents with disabilities will be good parents or should be parents, but to but not to just assume that parents with disabilities can't parent their kid. Now, in going about doing your summer project, have you partnered with the education departments to get that information? We have a program in Minnesota called MinLink, which is a number of different agreements with state departments. So the Department of Education, Department of Human Services. And so we actually have all of this data in-house here. So it's a great resource. So we have a number of doctoral students doing their dissertations. We have faculty looking at different projects. And, you know, it's not just child welfare. It's housed here in the Child Welfare Center, but there's education data that folks from education, College of Education can use. There's income data. So it's a really great resource for doing research using administrative data, noting the limitations of administrative data. So we can know what's in the system, but it's not the same as doing a national random, randomized sample. For instance, child welfare workers may or may not decide to put down that the child has a disability. So you right. might actually have more people in the system than is actually listed. There's arguments that we're both either overestimating or underestimating the numbers. We're really not sure about that right now. We do know that if we look at the estimated prevalence rate of disability or the census data prevalence of disability in Minnesota, that we have way more kids with a disability in the child welfare system than we should have if we're you know, looking at the overall prevalence. But because of who's labeling it, we don't know if these kids are the same kids or not. So the census data has a lower prevalence of people with disabilities, generally speaking. Right. So we could say from that that kids with disabilities are overrepresented in the child welfare system, but we're using different measures to measure disability. So we're not exactly sure about that, but it seems like that's probably the case. Um, certainly in out-of-home placement, we have a lot of kids with disabilities that are in out-of-home placement, and then these kids are harder to find permanent homes for, so these kids with disabilities are more likely to stay in the child welfare system and then transition into adulthood or out of the foster care system as well. Does your state provide out-of-home care outside of the child welfare system for families? Yeah, we do, but there are options for that, but oftentimes that happens through the child welfare system. But then your most recent is trying to find out what kind of supports that you can give people. Since we know that states are changing to look at parental supports now, that courts are going to start requiring that, that they need information on what these parental supports are. So we're trying to get this information in line for the changing state policies. So we can see, yes, when the court says you need to, you need to assess parental supports, we have some information on what parental supports are. And so that's what we're doing right now is trying to come up with a baseline of what what are typical parental supports that parents with disabilities need and want and find useful. And then these might be the types of supports that eventually 
in our dreams anyways are made available to parents with disabilities. So there's different ways of making change. It's not the only way to do it, but our strategy was to do it this way, find out the laws are changing and we can provide information on how we can change the laws to fit with best practices and then provide information for the system on what the types of supports are, then maybe this will sort of push things along. We'll see. We've been pretty happy since we started doing our policy work looking at the discrimination laws, and we actually made a guide for legislative change, and we passed that out pretty broadly. There's been a number of states that have changed their laws, so it's very exciting for us. So your hope is maybe that Minnesota will change their law? Minnesota, of course, (laughs) coming from Minnesota, is already ahead of the game. So we never had parental disability in our state law. That doesn't mean that they haven't looked at it. So it's not coming just from Minnesota. But Minnesota's had, you don't have to have parental disability written to the state statute for the courts to look at parental disability. But it certainly makes it easier when you do have it written into Do you see a need maybe for education for the the courts as well as the child welfare workers? Absolutely. And they're a key player in this, which is why we were focusing on the statutes, because we think that's important to actually, and if parental supports is written in the statutes, then we're hoping that they'll start looking at it. Yes, but there's a huge need for education of the courts, court system, all the way, the judges, et cetera. And, you know, that's something that we probably haven't been focusing on enough. You've talked about it a little bit, but what would you say the implications for social work practice in particular that your research has? I think most directly for the child welfare system and anybody working in the developmental disabilities or other types of disabilities services is to look at the concept of, well, two things. One is to look at the concept of parents as needing support for parenting just like it's parents with disabilities needing the support for parenting, just like other parents need support for parenting, and to not try to focus on pushing the independent parenting aspect. And this really fits within the new trends in child welfare anyways, looking at differential response and all of that. Um, but sort of broadening the concept of supports to including the concept of parental supports and recognizing that parents with disabilities with supports can parent their kids. They might not be able to parent their kids by themselves. They might need broader supports. And also that parents with disabilities and their families typically know what they need. And so to use them as the experts, you know, and so we often don't do that for parents with disabilities or parents with general. I think I think there's it's easy to say this and people say this a lot, but I think there is a need for collaboration across systems when we're dealing with people involved in both systems. And there's also a need for people to know more about different systems. So the folks in the child welfare need to understand disability and the concepts of supports and the concepts of inclusion and the social model of disability would really be great for them when they're working with folks with disabilities. And likewise, for folks working in the disability service system, to understand the child welfare system and understand that it's a completely different system that has timetables and is an involuntary system and to understand what happens in the child welfare system. Certainly, 
a lot of people involved in these systems do know this. There's plenty of people who go back and forth and really good at collaborating, but there might be need to be more formal ways to collaborate or are systems set up in a way to allow for collaboration. Well, it certainly sounds like you have a lot of research areas that you can go with this topic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and they've only scratched wide. the surface, really. <laughs> it's pretty wide open. There are really only a handful of people across the world looking into this right now, and Tracy and I know most of them. There's a new organization called the Association for Successful Parenting, CASP, that just formed a year or two ago. And there's the research group in that, and there's a handful of us in Canada and Australia and the United States and folks in England, you know, and we pretty much all know each other. There's also a a small group out of the um, AAIDD, the American Association on Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities, that's looking at parents with disabilities. But as far as we know, there's most of them are psychologists. And there's not very many people looking more broadly at it. Sort of exciting, but it also feels like, oh, we need to keep going in all sorts of different directions at once because there's so much, so much that's needed. It sounds like good research that definitely needs to be done. Is there anything else that you want to say that we haven't already covered? I don't really think so. I think the main point is that there are kids and parents with disabilities who interact with the child welfare system, and we don't know a whole lot about how they're faring. We don't even know about how many, in some cases, how many of them there are, but it really can greatly affect their lives when they're involved in the child welfare system, and many people need support. So our goal is trying trying to figure out what supports people need to be able to, you know, live a good life. So that's that's our research area. Well, thank you very much. I certainly have enjoyed the conversation, and I hope our listeners do too. Thank you. All I right. enjoyed it as well. All right. Thank you. You've been listening to Dr. Elizabeth Lightfoot, Associate Professor and PhD Program Director at the University of Minnesota School of Social Work, discuss her work on the intersection between child welfare services and children with disabilities. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time for more lectures and conversations on social work practice and research. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.